0: Good morning, ladies. Welcome to Women in the Word. Thanks for being here. Um, If you happened to be gone last week for spring break, we missed you. We had a great time here together. But you can always pick up a CD of anything that you miss from Women in the Word at the Women's Kiosk on Sunday morning or out here at the desk after we're done today. And if you have a smartphone, there is an app on your smartphone, a CCBC app, that you can get all the sermons, anything we do on Sundays and Women in the Word too. So great options so that you can keep up. I have a praise this morning too. My uh, little eight-month-old grandson had surgery yesterday morning in Cambridge, England, uh, to correct something he had been born with. And my praise is um, the surgery not only went well, it was much less extensive than what the doctors had thought it might be when they got in there. I just thank God was gracious and good, and it turned out to be every best-case scenario that uh, could be possible. So I'm praising God. Some of you prayed for me. Thank you for that. Uh, but here's what I wanted to tell you. Uh, yesterday afternoon, which was night in England, they FaceTimed me. My um, kids did, and my husband was there for the surgery. So I could see the baby after the, you know, surgery. And they thought they were going to have to be in the hospital for several days. It turned out they didn't have to be, and they actually got to go home last night, which was a huge unexpected praise. So they're FaceTiming me, and I'm thinking, Oh, gosh, I hope the baby is, you know, doing good, and he's had such a terrible day, and, you know, whatever. Well, it turns out the baby was great. The people that weren't doing well was, of course, the parents and the grandparents. Grandparents. And here they were on FaceTime. The three of them are just sitting on the sofa with this blank look. And the baby is on the floor in his toys up and down, crawling, you know, pulling up. I said, you know, next time I think I need to pray more for the parents and the grandparents. Because they were the ones that really suffered through the whole thing. Thank you for your prayers. They God is gracious. I have not had the opportunity to see the film Lincoln yet. I don't know whether any of y'all have seen it or not. So I don't know if it covers a speech that Lincoln made in 1858 when he was running for senator from Illinois. Lincoln had the conviction that the United States could not endure being a nation that was divided over the issue of slavery. They would not endure if they remained half slave and half free, which is what the United States was in 1858 when he ran for senator. And at the onset of his Senate campaign, he actually gave a speech before, uh, in Springfield, Illinois, before the uh, House of Representatives in Illinois, and it was called. The speech is called "A House Divided." And in that speech, he quoted. Matthew 12:25, which is on your verse sheet which says Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and every city or household divided against itself will not stand now here in the scriptures when Jesus uses this wisdom he's defending his authority to cast out demons to the Pharisees that were questioning him on that point when Lincoln paraphrased this in his speech in 1858 he actually said a house divided against itself cannot stand and he was defending his position that in order for the United States to remain a sovereign nation, it was going to have to be united on this difficult issue of slavery. Now, even Lincoln's friends considered it a very radical concept, a risky proposition for a politician who wanted to be elected in that day. Uh, It seems actually that political correctness isn't new. It was around even in 1858. But his friends said to him, Hey, if you want to be elected senator, this is not the stand to take. Um, but he refused to run on the more popular uh, platform of half-slave and half-free. And Lincoln actually lost his Senate campaign, and most believed that his house-divided speech was the cause of his loss. But Lincoln, and certainly our Lord Jesus, knew that whether the Pharisees or the people of Illinois uh, agreed with them, it was a logical truth. A logical truth that it's one thing for a nation or a people to have opposition from their enemies in the outside world. But it is a whole nother thing to have disagreements and discord from inside a nation or people that are serious enough to divide them and eventually destroy their unity. You know, last week we looked at Nehemiah in chapter 4 as he led the nation of Israel against opposition from their enemies in the outside world. And I shared with you last week that the true measure of any leader is how well they face opposition. Uh, today we're going to see Nehemiah as he faces probably the greatest test that most leaders will ever face and that is the test of a house divided divisions and discords and strife among the people of Israel that really threatened their nation from the inside so let's turn to Nehemiah chapter 5 together and let's read some verses let's start with verse 1 and read the first 5 verses Now, the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. Some were saying, We and our sons and our daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. "'Still others were saying we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our field and vineyards. "'Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, "'and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. "'Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless "'because our fields and our vineyards belong to others.' Now the situation that they're complaining to Nehemiah here in these first five verses is not something that just developed overnight during the 52 days that the remnant was building the wall together. The remnant, if you remember from our study of uh, Ezra, the remnant actually began to return from captivity in Babylon many years, over 80 years earlier under Zerubbabel. And somewhere in those years after those waves of people began to return, first was Zerubbabel then with Ezra, uh, and now Nehemiah there. The people had begun to face difficulties in four different areas. And the first one we see here is a food shortage. Obviously, the Israelites needed grain to feed their families. Um, And there were going to be times that they had been in the past working on the temple and working on the wall. So they were not tending their crops or doing anything else to provide food for their families. And verse 3 actually calls the food shortage that they're talking about here a famine. But it must not have been a universal famine that everybody was experiencing because they are able to buy grain from... Someone has grain, so they are able to buy it and it tells us that the people are buying grain and how they are doing it they are getting the money to do it by mortgaging their fields and their vineyards and their homes to other uh, to their fellow jews the fellow jews were taking out the mortgages and lending them money the second problem they are facing is that there's some that weren't able to pay their property taxes to king artaxerxes so they are borrowing money again from their fellow jews to pay their property taxes The third problem that comes up here that they're facing is that those that were in need that have borrowed money because they didn't have food for their families, now they're being wrongly charged interest by their fellow Jews whenever they had to borrow that money to either buy food or pay their taxes. Now, it doesn't actually say that here in these verse 5 verses. We learn about it later. But verse 5 gives us a clue about it um, because it says these are our brothers, these are our... Flesh and blood, oh wait a minute, I may have told you the wrong verse there. Yeah, it is verse 5, gives us a clue about the interest. It says, because of our very own, our countrymen, uh, their flesh and blood, same as our countrymen, Though our sons are as good as theirs. The Mosaic law actually forbade the Israelites from charging interest when they made loans to their fellow Jews. So where it says, although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, what they are really doing is they are going to Nehemiah and they are kind of outing this practice to Nehemiah. They are saying, these are our flesh and blood. They are charging us interest. Look at Exodus 22, 25 on your verse sheet. It says, if you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not treat it like a business deal. Charge no interest. And of course, that's exactly what they were doing. They were treating it as a business deal. Leviticus twenty-five, thirty-five says, If any of your fellow Israelites become poor and unable to support themselves among you, help them, as you would a foreigner or a stranger, so they can continue to live among you. Do not take any interest or any profit from them, but fear your God, so that they may continue to live among you. You must not lend the money at interest or sell them food at a profit. Now, clearly these commands are not being observed, which brings us to the fourth problem. The fourth problem is because of the exorbitant interest rates, and I read a a couple of commentaries that estimated these interest rates between 12 and 15%, the people that were poor and needy to start with are now unable to pay their debts to their fellow Jews. And because they're not able to pay their debts, they're giving their children in slavery to take care of their debts. So you can see the downward spiral that this disobedient uh, nation has found themselves in once again. It's the self-interest of some who are clearly disobeying the commands of Moses versus the interest of their fellow Jews who are obviously poor and needy who really don't even have food to feed their families. It's a house divided and it's a situation that's creating such divisions and discords that it's even coming up as they're rallying to build the wall together and secure their future. So what begins as this simple grain shortage for some of the people has now turned in to a critical threat to the very remnant that God has been gracious to. When we looked at chapter 4 last week, we talked about the fact that it really read like an action-adventure novel there at the end. They were working on the wall with one hand. They had their weapon in the other hand as they fought together against the enemy. When we learn what's going on this week, what it really reads like is a heartbreaking betrayal of brother against brother, of selfish interest against the interest of your fellow countrymen. And it also reads like a heartbreaking betrayal of their God who has graciously restored them, brought them out of captivity. God has brought this remnant back to their homeland only to ha- for those who actually have resources and there are some in the land that do have resources to disobey His commands simply for their own selfish gain, to profit from it. And these selfish modems are clearly dividing God's people here as they cry out to Nehemiah. And it threatens God's plans. It threatens God's plans of rebuilding and restoring the nation of Israel. You know, there is a reason why unity in the Scriptures is an important theme throughout the entire Bible. And it's really not just so that we can all feel good and hold hands and sing Kumbaya together. It's not about us. Unity in God's people is important because it honors God and it pleases Him and it advances His kingdom. Look at Psalm 133.1 on your verse sheet. This is the psalmist saying how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. That is good and pleasant not only for the people but for God's kingdom and for God Himself. Unity also advances God's kingdom as the world sees a picture of love that self-interest never paints. Look at John 17:22 on your verse sheet. And this is Jesus praying to God the Father before the crucifixion. Jesus says, I have given them the glory you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. That's the picture unity paints to the world. Uh, Look at Philippians 2. Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one of mind. Do nothing out of self-ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. A great picture of unity and the value it is to the body. But in the midst of building this wall, which is being built to secure this people, Nehemiah has discovered that these selfish interests are dividing God's people and threatening the plan that God has. And so as God's leader, he does a great thing here. He runs headlong into the challenge of rebuilding not just the wall, but rebuilding the people and their unified spirits. Let's keep reading. Let's read verses 6 through 13. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. And, of course, this is Nehemiah. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. And I told them, You are exacting usury from your own countrymen. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, As far as possible, we have bought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your brothers only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued... "'What you are doing is not right. "'Shouldn't you walk in fear of our God "'to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? "'I and my brothers and my men "'are also lending the people money and grain, "'but let the exacting of usury stop. "'Give back to them immediately "'their fields and their vineyards "'and their olive groves and their houses, "'and also the usury you are charging them, "'the hundredth part of the money, grain, "'and new wine and oil. "'We will give it back,' they said." And we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and, the no- and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, "In this way, may God shake out of his house and out of his house and possessions every man who does not keep this promise. So may such a man be shaken out and emptied At this, The whole assembly said, "Amen and praise the Lord." And the people did as they promised. Beginning in verse 6, we see what Nehemiah's response is to the challenge of his leadership as he hears what really is for him a heartbreaking story about the situations that some of the people that have been working by him day by day on the wall find themselves in. Now, we don't have a timeline here in the text of when they begin to share all this information with Nehemiah. It was definitely during the construction of the wall. It wasn't uh, after the wall was completed. Last week we learned that the morale morale of the people had gotten really low. They were physically exhausted. They were facing attack on every side. This week the morale takes even a step lower. Remember that Nehemiah had just showed up in Jerusalem a few weeks earlier. He actually is the new guy in town. And you see, here's these people Um, cry out against their fellow Jews about what's going on. It really is a testimony to what an amazing guy he must be because apparently these people had just been working with him day by day And they decided that he was faithful and he was a leader they could trust. So they go to him with what's really weighing on them. You know, building this wall is exhausting and fighting night and day is exhausting. But you know, Nehemiah, what's really getting to our spirits is what's going on with our families. We've sold our children into slavery. We don't have enough to eat. Their transparency really is evidence of their trust um, and their faith in Nehemiah. And their trusted faith is really rightly placed, isn't it? Because Nehemiah's response in verse 6 is one of righteous anger against the fellow Jews that are charging this us- usury. He has a heart for the poor and needy that have been um, having to pay this. This is social injustice, really, ladies, At it's worse. Because this truly involves the haves exploiting the have-nots. And they are doing it for their own personal gain. You know, the people that have money are not just simply driving by, the people um, that don't have food on the street corner like we see every now and then and saying, oh gosh, I can't stop, I don't want to do that. No, they are exploiting them. They are not simply ignoring them, they are exploiting them. And they are doing it in direct disobedience to God's commands. Now notice Nehemiah doesn't act immediately here. I'm hoping you had a chance to talk about this in your small group. I think even as gifted a leader as he is and a great problem solver that we've seen him be, that when he hears what's going on really at the heart of these people, that it just sets him back on his heels for a minute. You know, kind of that blow where you think, Whoa, I I have to take this in. His own passion for God and his compassion for God's people, which we're going to see in a a minute, is so very different than what he's hearing here from the remnant that has been returned graciously out of captivity that I think he has to stop for a minute and get his mind around it. This kind of selfishness that he's hearing about is not in Nehemiah's character after pondering it, um, he's not a man of inaction. You know, there's two kinds of people in the world, world, confronters and avoiders. And Nehemiah is definitely a confronter because he immediately acts on what he hears. I think one of the things that Nehemiah must have concluded as he pondered this is, um, is that this could be the real deal breaker here for God's people. It wasn't really as much about the enemies that they had on the outside or how hard it was to rebuild the wall. If he can't rebuild unity among God's people, the wall they're working on is really worthless. It's really worthless. Why would they go to all the trouble to build this wall, to secure Jerusalem, to protect a people that can't obey God And don't care about each other and take a second to think about that wall with me I thought about it a lot while I was working on this you know in chapter 2 and 3 we saw the people uh, chapter 3 was all about rebuilding those gates with all those funny names and they were rebuilding all those gates so that they could connect together the solid sections of the wall and they were doing that to unify the wall completely all around in chapter 4 we saw there were gaps in the wall and they put people there by families to defend those gaps so nobody would get in until that wall could be built up as a complete, solid fortress around Jerusalem. If Nehemiah and the people didn't construct a solid wall, unified with no gaps, no divisions, then it was really pointless, wasn't it? If they built it all nine-tenths up and they left one-tenth of that wall open, it was all for naught. And the same thing is true with God's people. If we can't build, if they can't build a solid nation with no big points of division because of disobedience, no gaps in how they listen to God and obey Him, then it's going to be pointless. The wall isn't going to protect them. If it's solid and secure, if their hearts are are not solid and secure along with it." So Nehemiah sets out to restore unity in God's people in three ways. The first thing that he does is he goes directly to the people that should have been the most concerned about the poor and needy among them, which was the nobles and the officials, uh, and he boldly confronts them. And he does not, even though he stopped and pondered and thought about his words, once he moves forward to action, He does not beat around the bush. He goes straight to them and says, you're charging your people interest. He doesn't say, well, I'm not sure what's going on here. He goes straight to the point. And really, loaning money is not the issue here, but charging interest is clear disobedience. The next thing that Nehemiah does after he goes to the... Uh, officials and the nobles is he calls a, um, a larger meeting so that he can take this issue to a larger group of the people and in this large group here he actually points out a really foolish inconsistency that's going on Back in Babylon, he and his men had bought out of slavery from the Gentiles people, their own Jewish people, so that they could return to Jerusalem with the remnant. So Nehemiah and his men have paid money to Gentiles to buy their people out of slavery. These people go back to Jerusalem And their own people put them back in slavery. I mean, why did he buy them out in Babylon for the Jews to put them back in slavery in Jerusalem? And he tells them that right here. To Nehemiah, that is nuts that they don't get that. And once again, in verse 9, he boldly confronts their wrongdoing in saying he just simply says that what you're doing is wrong. It is not right. But he also makes what is truly a heartbreaking point in verse 9. Their immoral, their unethical behavior doesn't just reflect on their character. It's not just about what crummy people they are. It reflects on their God. It reflects on their God. Their God had graciously brought them out of captivity twice. Brought them out of captivity in Egypt. Brought them out of captivity in Babylon. And now their Gentile neighbors are watching them as they've been restored to Jerusalem under such amazing circumstances. And what their Gentile neighbors could have been seeing is a people that is so blessed by a gracious God. No, what their Gentile neighbors are now seeing is a people that are charging each other interest in the poor and the needy without food. They're charging them interest and then taking their children as slaves. If that's the best that can be expected from God's people, what does that say about their God? Their behavior is bringing reproach on their God in the eyes of their pagan neighbors. Look what Paul says in uh, a Ephesians 5, 1, about being an example. He says, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Definitely, these are people that are not following God's example of love, and they are not walking in the way of love when it comes to their own family, and their neighbors see that. Now the second thing that Nehemiah does here to restore unity amongst God's people is he exhorts them to obedience. He's already confronted them and said, What you're doing is wrong. Now he gives them a, a personal example in verse 10. He and his household have been loaning money to uh, the people who are needy. They've been doing the exact thing. If somebody needed to buy family for food for their family, he gave them the money. But he didn't charge them interest. And he exhorts them all to obedience by clearly telling them simply to stop it. There's a great YouTube video, I don't know whether any of you have seen it, of an old Bob Newhart skit. Some of you in this room don't even know who Bob Newhart is, I'm sure. I think it was a skit that was on Carol Burnett. Um, And in it, Bob Newhart plays a psychiatrist who claims he can cure anyone of a psychosis or a neurosis in five minutes for $5. So in this skit, he has his little office and there's five minutes and $5. And so some gal with this neurosis comes in and sits down and he sets the timer. And then she begins to go into this very complicated neurosis that she has. And then the timer dings when uh, five minutes is up. And he says, give me your five dollars. And then he just looks her right in the face and says, stop it. Um, Yeah. And that's the exact same strategy that Nehemiah uses here. He just looks him right in the face and says, stop it. He says, stop charging interest. Do the right thing. Give everything back, everything back, including the interest you've charged to the people you have exploited. And he emphasizes how important this obedience is Uh, By saying immediately in verse 11, you know, he doesn't say, okay, well, you know, take some time to get your business in order and maybe next week or next month or next year you need to make this right. He says immediately, obedience begins today. Now, Nehemiah, I think, had to have been encouraged when they agreed to it. Um, You know, Ezra, we talked about this in the small group leaders meeting, Ezra has been teaching the law to these people for the last 10 years. And so I'm I'm hopeful that even though they haven't been obeying it, when, when he brings up obedience to them, that they've had enough involvement with the law that they understand this is the right thing to do. But Even though they agree to obedience, Nehemiah is a sharp guy. And he doesn't really let them off the hook with just, uh, Sure, we'll go out and do what we say to do here. He knows talk is cheap. Uh, He's seen how they've behaved before. So he quickly summons the priest here. And he makes the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they've promised. And he gives them that great visual of shaking the robes, the folds out of his robes, which in their day they would have known what that meant. It's grave consequences after they take the oath if they're not true to their word because in his day breaking an oath that they took before the priest is the same thing as looking God right in the face and lying to him. And so this gesture that he uses um, Nehemiah is asking God to reject them to reject them as a people if they do not hold to their oath as a result of unfaithfulness and duplicity. You know, the Israelites here are a great example of people who have brought great trouble on themselves because they've forgotten what they know is the first and greatest commandment. Jesus is asked that question in Matthew 22:37. 37. Look on your first sheet. Jesus replied to the question, What is the first and greatest commandment? And he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. When a spiritual community, any spiritual community, loses sight of their God, they don't love him with all their heart, mind, and soul then they do lose sight of the welfare of his people. And then they become not only a selfish people, but a divided people. And that's exactly what we see here with the nation of Israel. Because the plans of God and the welfare of God's people are so important to Nehemiah, He has taken on this challenge of restoring God's people. And he does it by confronting their sin. He does it by calling them to obedience and then simply holding them accountable for their actions. It's a simple formula. It's a simple formula. It's one we can all remember in this room. But it takes a leader who understands the seriousness of a house divided to desire to take the step to do that. Okay, so let's finish. Let's look at verses 14 through 19. Moreover, from the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until his thirty-second year, twelve years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. But the earlier governor, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act that way. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on the wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me. And every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. Remember me with favor, favor, O my God, for all I have done for these people. Now, sometime when the wall was being built around the city during that, those 52 days, Nehemiah was actually appointed the governor of Judah. And it was the highest position of leadership in the land at that time. And it makes sense that Nehemiah, right here in the middle of talking about. The divisions and the disobedience of the people that nehemiah has inserted this account of his leadership here because of what's been going on with the people because of their self-interest and the divisions and the discord and the disobedience he realizes the importance of having a leadership that is not about self-interest and so he highlights what leadership that isn't about self-interest looks like here in the text I read a quote on leadership this week while I was working on this that said leadership means going further than one, than those one is leading. Going further than one that was leading. And certainly that's exactly what we see as Nehemiah gives his account of what it looked like when he was governor. He governs with great integrity over the people. His actions are definitely above and beyond anything we've we've seen the people of Israel do here. And certainly he goes farther than any of their previous governors have ever gone. Verse 15 tells us that the governors had actually placed a huge burden on the people with their demands. They weren't concerned about the poor and the needy in their midst if there's some who couldn't feed their families that were having to borrow money to buy grain or to sell their children to pay interest. The Persian government had actually given the governors the right to do this to exact Um, whatever it was going to take to feed the officials at their table from the people um, the right to have money to entertain their guests that was one of the perks of being the governor that you didn't have to personally feed out of your own wealth um, all of the people at your table It's kind of a similar thing to an income tax or whatever the governor would receive an allotment of food from the people so he could feed the official visitors Unfortunately, the Persian gov- the governors that were appointed by Persia over Judah had not only taken from the people that food allowance, they would taken something else too. They had taken 40 shekels of silver to enhance their tables. Even their assistants lorded it over the people, it says, and demanded money from them. Because of Nehemiah's reverence for God, he has great integrity as a leader and he never takes advantage of of his position of power and he never abuses the power that's been given to him. He doesn't even acquire the personal wealth that it says. When it says we did not acquire land, apparently it had been a practice to acquire, and I I don't know how they did it, but somehow whoever was governor was able to acquire great personal wealth by gaining real estate. Nehemiah did none of that. What the text tells us is, uh, he says about himself, is he simply devoted himself to working on the wall and to personally caring for the people that were given to him to govern. He personally provided for the men that worked on the wall with him as well as the official visitors that he was required to entertain as governor. And in spite of feeding over 150 uh, people every day, he never demanded what was due him as governor. Can you imagine what that was like to feed 150 people every day? He never demanded what was due him out of compassion for God's people. Out of compassion for God's people. And what that tells us, all of this tells us about Nehemiah, is that Nehemiah, even though he's governor of Judah now, has never lost sight of the calling that God placed back on his heart in Babylon. You know, when we read back uh, when Nehemiah 1, when he was first called, he doesn't talk about coming to to be governor and get rich does he he knows that God had never called him to personal power and God had not called him to financial gain God has simply called him to rebuild that wall and restore the future of the people of Israel and that's what he did that's what he did in verse 16 the final verse of this chapter Nehemiah prays he's a man of prayer we've seen that all along And as he prays, we discover what it is that he really wants. He doesn't want power, and he doesn't want money. Nehemiah only wants God to remember him with favor. That's all he wants out of all he's done for these people. His prayer, as this chapter ends, really reminds us it 's a great statement of nehemiah 's confidence that God is a fair and just God who remembers those who are truly his. Look on your verse sheet at hebrews six ten God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. You know, Nehemiah didn't write this, but it's who he knows his God is. And that's how he's lived his life as he governs the people of Israel. He not only points others to God by the way he leads, he considers God's favor his greatest reward. You know, we could have had so many personal great applications from this chapter. And I hope maybe you wrote some down as God spoke to you as you've studied this chapter. But I want to share just a couple that I uh, thought about as I worked on it. Um, In light of the self-interest that we see here in the uh, nation of Israel, I really uh, considered how self-interest, the harm that they do in God's kingdom... And the reason I did is because we totally live in a me culture, don't we? We live in a me world. I live in it too. I'm not, um, I'm not pointing my finger to you. We live in a me. We're surrounded by it. Uh, and this chapter is a great example, as I said, of how being part of that me culture can cause harm to God's kingdom. You know, it is fine to drive up to Starbucks. I do it often. And I drive up and I order a venti, half cat, no fat, double whip um, latte. It's, it's, it's all about me when I order my coffee. It totally is. It is all about me. when None of you all are going to drink it. I get to do it exactly the way I want it. But if we consider Nehemiah, and how God used him because he had God's interests at the center of his universe and not his own, then as believers in the me culture, when we leave Starbucks, um, it should end. It should end. A life lived with selfish interests catered to is going to have a hard time being an effective tool in God's kingdom. As we see from Nehemiah, self-interest do great harm not only to God's reputation, but to God's people and to His plans. And because self-interest is usually the root of our discontent... um, we can become people. We can become the people. Not as we're looking at these Jewish people I'm thinking, how could they do that? How could they uh, be the people that cause division and discord? But because we're part of this me culture and self-interest causes a discontent, we can become the people that cause divisions and divisiveness in our church families. Now, I'm not talking about times that we stand on the truth of Scripture like Ted did a few weeks ago when he talked on the right to life and abortion, and there were people that were unhappy with him. That's not what I'm talking about. We can stand on the truth of Scripture and know that people may be unhappy. What I'm talking about is when things just don't line up with our personal tastes or wants or our personal ideologies, and we get unhappy about it, and then we get vocal about it because we live in America, and we can go and tell people exactly what we like and we don't like and how they can need to change things to meet Our me culture. Um, And usually they're small things. Usually they're things like music. Or they're things like. Oh I don't really like who's in my small group. Or I don't really want my small group to do that. Um, When our self interests lead us to create problems in the church, then we become the problem. One of Ted's favorite sayings, I don't know whether you've heard him say this or not, he'll say it on a Sunday morning, we're glad you're here. If you're here because you're looking for a perfect church, you need to get up and leave because you are going to spoil that perfect church. You know, none of us are perfect, but we need to be careful about being divisive. We need to count the cost of being divisive. Look at Titus 3.10 on your verse sheet. Warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful and they are self-condemned. Count the cost of being that divisive person in God's kingdom because it may not be a price you want to pay. And then finally, Lynn told us a couple of weeks ago when we started out talking about Nehemiah and looking at what an amazing leader is, uh, she challenged all, all of us to realize that we're leaders too because we are leading by taking the gospel out into a world that really needs to hear it. Because you're a leader... As a believer in a world that doesn't know what we're talking about, we need to remember Nehemiah. Uh, I hope that as you've studied him, he becomes one of your favorite people in all the scriptures. Remember Nehemiah in your own quest to be a leader. Remember his compassion for these people. Remember the integrity, how he leads. Remember how he's willing to step into this situation, uh, even though it was difficult Remember how he never loses sight of what God's true calling was in his life. And let's be those same kind of leaders out in the world. You know, Nehemiah is a great story. It's a great and exciting story. But God didn't tell it to us to entertain entertain us. He gave it to us so we can be those same kind of leaders. So let's be leaders that have integrity and that remember that God's favor is our greatest reward also. Pray with me. Father, you're gracious and good. We thank you for your word, how it um, changes our lives and it teaches us who you are. Father, I do pray that we would be leaders like Nehemiah. We would be leaders who have compassion, who never lose sight of the calling you've given us, um, who lead with integrity and who choose your reward. Uh, Your favor is our greatest reward. I ask your hand of favor and blessing on these women as they go out in the world today. Be with those that are not with us today that are part of this group. And, Father, we pray that the word of truth um, would be real and living and active in our lives. um, And we would be bold enough to share it with people. I pray this in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.